You're listening to the feed. This is the feed. This is the feed. The feed. You're listening to the feed. In Markham. In Richmond Hill. You're listening to the feed in Vaughan. In Stouffville. In Woodbridge. In Unionville. Welcome to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. This is York Region's only news magazine show dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. Coming up, recipes using food scraps as ingredients, a song of support for healthcare workers, and hitting the road with a CAA. But we begin with Ontario's pandemic budget. Thanks, Anne. I'm Tina Cortez. On Wednesday, the provincial government tabled their 2021 budget. The $186 billion plan includes billions to battle COVID-19, from vaccines to testing to tracing and patient care. There is support for small businesses and families. To take us through the specifics, the MPP for Willowdale and the Parliamentary Secretary to the Finance Minister, Stan Cho. MPP Cho, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Tina. Is there enough, let's talk about this, for health care while we are still in this pandemic? Yeah, thanks, Tina. It's an important question because a year ago we started this fight against COVID-19 and and this budget announced Wednesday is the third phase of our $51 billion action plan in response to the pandemic. And while we can see a light at the end of our tunnel, our our government needs to remain focused on protecting the health and safety of Ontarians and protecting our jobs and economy. And, And we're doing this by investing $16.3 billion into our healthcare system, including a billion dollars to get vaccines into the arms of of every Ontarian. Uh, But $5.1 billion is going to hospitals to build capacity and to address that surgical backlog because we know that there's procedures outside of COVID-19 that need to be uh, prioritized. And we're also uh, providing $4.9 billion to help us get to our nation-leading commitment to provide an average of four hours of daily care to long-term care residents. Uh, we also are helping parents with the third round of the child benefits, uh, which will pro- provide $400 uh, per child. And, and we understand the needs of Ontarians right now are great, uh, so it is a big budget to support. Your critics have asked, though, why no new education funding? Well, uh, Tina, the education-based funding increases every single year, as you can see from the budget. Now, what you do see, of course, is is a gradual uh, decrease of the COVID-19-related spending. And I think that's a that's the right thing to do. I mean, obviously, we won't be, hopefully, spending on vaccination centers uh, when this pandemic is behind us. And, and so you'll see some funding reductions that relate to COVID. But to be clear, the base funding for our, our valuable education and our health care system, they all increase in the out years. What about those who have lost their jobs or their businesses entirely? Let's speak specifically about small businesses. What help is there for them? Thanks, Tina. Yeah, small businesses have been hit very hard, and I know there's uh, many of uh, these small businesses throughout York Region and our province who have been impacted uh, in a devastating way. And, and we announced last month a, a support grant for these businesses who've been impacted by revenue forced to shut down with, with grants between ten dollars and $20,000. Uh, in the budget on Wednesday, we announced a doubling of those support grants so that businesses can weather the storm. That's not all we've done. We, we've provided a series of supports from hydro reductions. Uh, we've also... Uh, made permanent reductions to to small business property taxes, uh, as well as eliminating the EHT, a tax on jobs for the smallest of small businesses. But, Tina, we also recognize that the first iteration of the grant program left some gaps, particularly when it came to the tourism sector. And we know uh, hospitality has also been adversely affected. The hotels, motels, travel agencies, while not forced to close, saw a very significant reduction in revenue. And so uh, this budget announced a $600 million in relief 
for the tourism sector, a grant uh, for those operators that I just mentioned so that they can also weather this storm. Uh, more to be done, of course, and, and certainly we are working towards that. Now, you mentioned long-term care, and your, the finance minister said your government would increase capacity for long-term care homes. What does that mean in the real world? Well, in the real world, uh, Tina, it means that long-term care has really been in a bad place for many decades, and it, it didn't have the care or the attention or the resources it needed. And and and, and fortunately, this pandemic hit and, and really made the problem a lot worse very quickly. And so record funding uh, dedicated towards long-term care, creating 30,000 new beds. And we're two-thirds of the way to that commitment. But perhaps most importantly, we've committed to a nation-leading standard of uh, four hours of daily care per resident. I mean, today it's two and a half hours, uh, and that's unacceptable for our seniors who built this country. And so $4.9 billion is going to mean that the resources are actually in place to accomplish this very ambitious goal within four years. That means training tens of thousands of nurses and and PSWs, and and these funds will go a long way towards making that happen. And those beds we can already see are on the way today. So then how do you keep services and programs without raising taxes? How does this all work? great question, Tina, because there's some who believe that you've got to raise taxes uh, to pay for this, and there's others that believe, well, you've got to cut programs and services to pay for this, and, and I think that's a false choice. There, there's a third path, and, and that path is to bet on the people of Ontario, and we saw before COVID-19 that Ontario was leading the country and, and among the leaders in North America for job creation. Of course, that's uh, revenue to the province, and, and we know we can get back there. I, we, we see some very positive signals from the private sector saying that if government creates those conditions for success, our job creators will return, that we will be amongst the most competitive jurisdictions uh, in the world. And we know that when this pandemic is behind us, it won't be Ontario versus Quebec or Ontario versus Pennsylvania. It will very much be Ontario versus the world. So we need to invest in Ontario today to make Ontario competitive for tomorrow. But that truly is the way back to balance. Okay, so picking up on that point, investing in Ontario with so many Ontarians working from home, is there an investment in broadband? Uh, absolutely, there is. In the, in, the, in the last budget in November, we announced a top-up of $680 million to broadband infrastructure, and at the time, that brought our total investment to a $1 billion. Uh, in this budget, we've increased that funding uh, by nearly $3 billion, bringing the investment to $4 billion in broadband infrastructure, and, and that's the absolute right thing to do. In today's society, in 2021, internet isn't just for our, our younger generation. It, it's for literally every single person, a parent. Uh, you, you've seen the challenges from, from working for home if you have an unreliable internet connection. For farmers operating their equipment uh, remotely to be most efficient. For the small business owner trying to retool to sell their, their products uh, online around the world. It is an absolutely necessary piece of our infrastructure and the money that we have dedicated towards uh, that in this budget clearly indicates our government is serious about connecting the grid across this province. I'm going to take it back to your critics and they say this is a spend, spend, spend budget, very unlike conservative budgets of the past. You know, there's no regrets uh, on our end, our government end for spending right now. This is the right thing to do. You know, when we assumed uh, government to almost three years ago, for the first two years, we were very focused on bringing the proposed deficit 
down. We chopped it in half uh, because that's the responsible thing to do. You save when times are good. You save for a rainy day. And certainly COVID-19 brought a huge storm upon us. And that's why we're able to uh, adapt so quickly and be so prudent and spend when it's necessary to spend. But when your people are threatened, when the health and safety of the people you serve are threatened, there's no regrets about spending the money then, and we have no regrets about spending that money now. We do have a plan back to prosperity, but for today, it is the right thing to do by spending to protect our health and safety. Now, it will take until 2029 to balance the books. That's frightening. What is your message then to Ontarians right here, right now? It seems daunting, but again, the, the priority has to be to protect us. We, we, we cannot have a healthy economy without healthy people. And that uh, projected path back to balance is based on private sector forecasts as well. And we have a slow growth uh, scenario as well as a faster growth uh, scenario. And, and as daunting as that may seem, um, it, it, it is an optimistic picture of our growth back. And, and our responsibility really is to be transparent on finances, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And we're the only government in Canada who has provided this level of transparency. And we, will, we are going to continue to do that. And I think it keeps a, a government accountable as well to treat taxpayer dollars uh, with respect. And that's exactly what we've done. We're going to continue to do. And, and I'm confident we're going to see some more optimistic outcomes uh, as a result. Your government said no one would be left behind. Does this budget do that for everyone in Ontario? We've moved very quickly from the beginning of this pandemic, and you've seen that you know when the onset of COVID-19 was about us, we, we've dedicated $17 billion to protect and support. Uh, that was increased to $30 billion later on in the pandemic, $45 billion in our November budget, and on Wednesday, it, it is now $51 billion in our, in our third phase of our plan, and uh, we, we don't leave anybody behind. That's why the spending has increased. Uh, of course, when you move that quickly, there are gaps, but that's why we continue to consult with the people of this province and small businesses. We had thousands of consultations from March of last year, and they are ongoing, Tina, and we need to keep going and speaking to the people to know where those gaps are. The job is not done, but we are confident that this budget will end the fight we started a year ago. MPP Stan Cho, thank you for joining us on the feed. We appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me, Tina. On February 24th, Joe DiPaolo went from deputy mayor of Richmond Hill to that city's acting mayor when Dave Barrow stepped away indefinitely for medical reasons. DiPaolo's workload suddenly increased, as did his responsibilities, but his enthusiasm for his new role rose to the occasion as well. For the first time on the feed as acting mayor of Richmond Hill, we welcome Joe DiPaolo. Thanks for being with us, Joe. Hello, Anne. Glad to be here. So how did it happen? How did you end up becoming acting mayor of Richmond Hill? Well, uh, at February 24th council meeting, uh, our, our members were saddened to hear Mayor Dave Barrow uh, was taking a medical leave. So, you know, I want to say off the bat that uh, we will miss his leadership. I, we all extend our, our sincere wishes for his speedy recovery. But uh, I was honored to be appointing the acting mayor until Mayor Barrow returns. And I'm deeply committed to carrying on the business of the city as acting mayor, and ensuring uh, business continuity. And, and since that time, it's been very busy, with, and we've had some great news. And within that month, you know, we're right now in the last weekend of March, so you've been at the job, the new job, for a little over a month. How's it been going for you? It, it's been going very well. We, we have excellent staff of the city of Richmond Hill. 
Uh, they, they have assisted me with the transition. Uh, but, you know, last week the province announced it's, it's moving to the next stage of the Young North subway extension. So a lot of exciting things happening, uh, a lot of exciting news. So um, it's, it's been a transition, but um, I'm, I'm, I'm really enjoying the role and enjoying the opportunity. Let's really dig into that Young North subway extension, the announcement last week. I understand that not one but two stations will be in Richmond Hill. What does that mean to you as acting mayor and to the city itself? Well, it's very exciting news for Richmond Hill and for York Region. You know, Richmond Hill is situated as an intermodal transit hub that connects communities right across the GTA. So this is almost similar to Toronto's Union Station. Uh, Not only is Richmond Hill already a unique destination in the GTA with 1,000 acres of park, uh, 147 parks, 1,000 acres, 32 kilometers of trails, and we have recreational lakes. Uh, we have a world-leading urban center, pedestrian-friendly, uh, with trails and, and walkways to and from the Young Subway. So th- this transit access will enable residents from across the GTA to have better access and to enjoy Richmond Hill. Will it also mean an increase in business for Richmond Hill for that sort that aspect of having? two stops of this subway extension within the city of Richmond Hill. Good for business? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, very good for business. Uh, the, our economic development department is, is attracting um, all, all sorts of uh, new jobs into Richmond Hill. We have a bold vision for Richmond Hill Center, and, and that, that vision is coming to life. Our, our residents will, will benefit from, from more than just the transformative and convenient new transportation options. Uh, there's going to be jobs available in in our new Richmond Hill Centre. Let me ask you this, and I'm not an expert when it comes to the building of subways and the extensions. You don't ever get anything for nothing. Will you, Richmond Hill, have to contribute to the the money that will be needed, and we're talking billions of dollars here, to uh, bring that subway extension up as far as it is proposed to go now? Well, yes, it's a $5.6 billion project. And, and the region, York, York region is contributing $1.5 billion to the project. But we, we've had 10 years to plan for it. It, it was announced some time ago. Um, our, our finance department at the region has done a great job allocating those dollars. And um, over time, we, we will be able to meet our portion of the, the contribution that needs to be made. And shovels in the ground, when is that going to happen? Well, the timeline has not changed. We're right on track for 2029-2030 completion of this project. But this announcement really steps it forward. We've gone from a proposal on paper and a a plan to an actual project that is ready to be tendered out. So over the next year, this this project will be tendered out to construction companies that, that are going to begin to start digging. Really going to put Richmond Hill on the map if it isn't already there. Can we also talk about what it will mean to the citizens of Richmond Hill in terms of pride of city? Well, our, our residents certainly should be proud. We're, we're uniquely situated, as I said. Um, five different modes of public transportation are intersecting at, at Young and Highway 7 now uh, through the creation of this subway. So uh, we are going to... Um, 
be so well connected to the rest of the GTA, and the rest of the GTA will be connected to Richmond Hill. But all of this traffic is, is going to be very well planned. Uh, it will be different from Finch Station, where, where traffic in the morning and afternoon is tunneling through neighborhoods. It's all vented around and outside of our neighborhoods. That's the benefit of having two stations. One of the stations, Bridge Station, will handle all the public, uh, all the public transit. Uh, the buses will be coming vented around Richmond Hill and onto, onto Highway 7. The station is actually situated between Highways 407 and Highway 7. Great for our residents, but that other station uh, gives the pedestrian access, and our, our trails and, and walkways and pathways are, are all going to be linked to a pedestrian access to the other station. So that, that's going to be really convenient for our residents, and you know, we're, we're servicing the entire York Region area. I know that you are still budget chair, as well as now acting mayor of Richmond Hill. You work very hard to keep tax rates really low in Richmond Hill. Will this extension uh, put a damper on that? No, absolutely not. Uh, like I said, it's, it's all been planned for. Uh, we're very proud to have the third lowest tax rate in Ontario. Uh, we have frozen our, our tax rate. We, we will have no increase this, this year in this year's budget, and um, you know, with with the challenges that COVID had presented to us, it, it's it's really quite a feat, and and our finance staff deserves to be congratulated. I want to congratulate Richmond Hill on being named recently a tree city by Arbor Day Foundation and the Agriculture Organization of the United Nations. I, that's outstanding. But what does it really mean? <laughs> well, this was this is really exciting, Anne. Um, we are one of 15 cities in Canada to receive this global designation. You know, trees are an important part of building a sustainable and healthy community. We're committed to protecting them. Richmond Hill has a strong foundation of urban forest management with many programs and planting initiatives that support trees on public and private property. So this is an honor that's conferred by the United Nations, and Richmond Hill is is, is so pleased to have received this honor. Just just one of 15 cities across Canada. I think that's great. That's expansion, but it's beautifying the city as well as uh, we call them Mother Nature's lungs. That's what we call trees at this uh, station. <laughs> so you have a, an initiative called Shop Richmond Hill. It was launched earlier this month in an effort to have the citizens and residents of Richmond Hill and beyond shop in Richmond Hill. Can you elaborate? Yeah, well, uh, Richmond Hill has teamed up with the Board of Trade. Uh, coming out of the gray lockdown, we want to encourage everyone to shop local. So businesses that have had a tough time with COVID-19 restrictions and lockdowns, we re- really want to give a, a, them a good injection, uh, you know, a, a healthy start, and we're hoping that our residents will, will comply, and, and we're, we're, we're offering gift certificates and prizes, a $500 gift certificate to be spent on Richmond Hill businesses of their choice for those participating on our city's Economic Development Department webinars. Sounds to me like you're settling in nicely into your new role as acting mayor of Richmond Hill. Joe DePaola, thank you so much for joining us this time round on The Feed. Thank you, Anne. Take care. Next on the feed, a song of support for the front line.
Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Physicians and nurses across this country are really struggling under the weight of this ongoing pandemic. Surveys are pointing to a dramatic increase in anxiety and fatigue among our frontline healthcare workers. Dr. Ben Chan, assistant professor of global health at U of T, a leader and strategist when it comes to healthcare quality, and an emergency department physician, decided to step up and show his support for fellow lifesavers. Dr. Ben Chan joins us now on the feed. Thank you for giving us your time, doctor. Thanks very much. I'm delighted to be with you today. So why did you choose to show your support for your fellow healthcare workers in this way? Singing, playing a guitar, and choosing the song Never Surrender. Well, this goes back to the beginning part of the our pandemic and it was uh, it was a terrifying period for all of us for the general public but also those of us uh, working in in healthcare and at the time we didn't know what we know about the virus now we didn't know what we know about how to prevent it we didn't have good treatments um, we were worried that uh, the virus would be living on surfaces for days on end later that turned out to be not so true but uh, um, but those are the things that we were uh, facing, and our counts were doubling every um, every uh, every five days. Um, but when I started working during that time, I saw some really remarkable uh, and touching things. One is that everybody just pitched in to help out whatever we can. Whenever there was a notice that a place was short-staffed, you know, people would be immediately uh, clamoring and jumping in to say, "What can I do?" to help. When you're in the environment, I think we are all trying to our best to be as supportive of each other as possible. And what I also observed is like, you know, people weren't waiting necessarily for uh, direction. They were already, you know, working on their own, doctors and nurses thinking about what, what, what do we need to start preparing for a week or two weeks down, down the road. Um, and uh, you know what supplies do we do we need to get? What things do we extra skills do we need to uh, to develop? And that initiative, that uh, determination, um, the stoicness, uh, that was all very moving. And I, I felt I wanted to put some of those observations and emotions uh, into music. And what has been the response from uh, healthcare workers, from your frontline uh, fellows, ladies and gentlemen who are working so hard, but also from the general public, the, we the patients? 
Well, I was um, really glad and touched by some of the feedback and comments that I had and from both the general public, uh, from colleagues, uh, from other people that worked in, in healthcare. There are, uh, and I think they were feeling these kinds of emotions of, of, of fear and anxiety. And some people said that uh, they listened to the the video and uh, that it brought them to to tears. Um, and uh, so I'm uh, I'm glad that I was able to um, uh, to, to share that uh, message of solidarity and hope with, with others. I understand that you also recorded I'm Still Standing as a tribute to local businesses uh, at the request of, of your local MP. So what was that like for you? Because, you know, businesses are struggling enormously through this pandemic, and your choice of song, I'm Still Standing, quite remarkable. And... Um yeah, I mean, I, I love my neighborhood um, I, in Toronto. Uh, this is the area of Don Valley West and uh, the area of Leaside and, and Thorncliffe Park and, and, and Bayview. And, uh, um, but the, the businesses are suffering, and some of my friends own some of these businesses. And, um, but, uh, you know, but uh, again, uh, in Similar to what I've seen in with my healthcare colleagues, um, they're historically trying to push forward, do everything that they can to survive, and um, and you know many of our the, the residents were trying to do what we can to to continue to to support them. And so when my member apartment asked me to do this uh, video, that was the the first thing that I thought of, and I tried to include as many. Uh, local businesses uh, as I could in uh, in that video as part of the process. You are very well trained. You have incredible experience. I want to ask you your thoughts right now on the vaccine rollout. A lot of people see it as beyond the light at the end of the tunnel. We sort of see it as a way of saving grace, if you will. What are your thoughts about the vaccines that are available to Canadians now and how they're being rolled out from coast to coast to coast? I'm delighted that uh, we're getting the vaccines uh, into Canada. Obviously, we had some logistical uh, issues uh, that were very difficult, and it's been slower than we all would have uh, liked. And um, and uh, there are limitations to how we could have managed that, given the fact that we don't have our own facilities in Canada to manufacture it. But now they're coming in um, and, and rapidly. I was thrilled to get my vaccine as a healthcare worker about uh, four weeks ago. Um, the nurses, everybody that was on the front line that day, we were all uh, pumped. I'd never seen them uh, that excited in the last year. Um, and my message is just a you know, just strong, strong encouragement. Please, everybody. Uh, take advantage of the vaccine uh, as soon as it's available to you. The vaccines are uh, are, are safe, and um, and they're providing near 100% protection against uh, hospitalization and death. And that's the most important thing for us uh, right now. It protects um, all of you. And uh, and it also uh, helps take the the strain off of our healthcare system. And it protects all of you as well, healthcare workers, frontline workers, physicians, nurses, everyone who is fighting so hard to keep people safe and alive here in this country. So, 
that's the good news. The vaccines are, are, are arriving. They're in arms in a big way now. Finally, there is disturbing news that keeps on coming out and filtering through third wave variants of concern. What are your opinions on that? And how do we stop? How do we get to the point where we say never surrender to, say, the variants of concern? I think a high degree of caution until everybody is can, uh, vaccinated, a high degree of caution is uh, still warranted. And uh, everything from proper face mask use, uh, physical distancing, limiting the amount of time that, uh, that, um, that you go out, um, trying to support our uh, local business, but in the safest way possible. I and mean, we, uh, we try as much as possible to do our shopping through curbside pickup or um, or, or, or delivery to our uh, house um, that helps keep people uh, employed, but tries to keep us uh, as safe as possible. And uh, it's important for us to not let our guard uh, down until we can get everyone vaccinated. And that's right here in Canada, but let's look around the globe. You have uh, been a consultant for many groups, including uh, the World Health Organization. They're very much in the news, making uh, headlines almost daily, certainly weekly. The World Health Organization, are you still in touch with them? Are you still working with and for them? Um, uh, Very much so. Most of my work is uh, with the World Bank, uh, based in uh, Washington, but we've been working with uh, all of those uh, organizations, with the WHO and other international uh, groups. Um, And uh, it's um, incredibly important to remember that uh, wealthier countries, such as Canada, um, continue to support uh, vaccination efforts uh, around the globe. And that's not, not only important for humanity, but it's also important for what happens here in Canada. If you allow a pool of the virus to continue unchecked in the rest of the world, that just gives time for the virus to continue to mutate into more dangerous forms and, uh, or forms that, uh, where we'll have to develop new vaccines. So the, the faster we can get it, uh, the pandemic controlled across the globe, the faster that uh, our lives will be able to return back to normal. And right here in our own backyard, Dr. Chan, you've worked in over 70 rural and Indigenous communities across Canada. How is that being handled in terms of the vaccine rollout, particularly for Indigenous communities? Um, I haven't been directly involved in that, but I have been aware of uh, some of the targeted campaigns of uh, flying out and bringing the the virus uh, to these uh, remote communities. Um, and on the one hand, they're, they're remote, so um, you know many of the communities have been spared because of their uh, physical distance. But the problem is that if you have just one case getting into those uh, those communities, then uh, the chances that, that you know, given the living conditions, that could it could spread like a wildfire. So uh, that's all the more reason uh, for us to be putting those communities uh, high in our priority list. In your opinion, Doctor, will we ever be rid of COVID-19? I wish I had a crystal ball and make that kind of prediction. Um, I, I, I certainly hope so, but we, let's not underestimate the amount of effort that it will take for us to stay ahead of the, uh, ahead of the virus and, um, and to continue our 
our, our vigilance. Uh, and, and, and certainly it will be many months, if not longer, um, that, that we will have to, you know, that this will be our, kind of our, our, our primary focus. Um, there may be situations where um, we may need regular booster shots the way that we do in influenza in order to keep it uh, uh, keep the virus uh, in, in check. So I'm, uh, I wish I could predict with 100% certainty, um, but, uh, but let's all do our part and, uh, and try to remain as uh, optimistic as we can for the future. Does that mean that we might see more waves? There is uh, talk in some portions of Canada of a third wave, and you know that means that if you go right through the, the number side of things, there could be a fourth and fifth. Is that something that's on the horizon? Uh, that's certainly a possibility, and, and my other, my colleagues that are closer to the, um, that have done you know, more of the detailed modeling, um, they've, some of them have already started raising concerns of, uh, of, of that happening. Um, and we're seeing, you know, shifts in, uh, in, in the patterns, um, maybe you've read that, uh, that we're seeing more younger people getting uh, serious disease um, uh, being seen in our in our hospitals, so the virus has a way of uh, trying to uh, outsmart us, <laughs> and we have to be on our toes to try to outsmart uh, the virus in turn. I want to circle back to the vaccine. If there's anyone listening right now who is hesitant about receiving a vaccine or about which vaccine they're going to receive, what do you say to them? The bottom line is that they all do a near-identical job of preventing uh, hospitalizations and deaths, and actually more, even stronger, uh, a near-perfect uh, rate of preventing hospitalizations and, um, and, and, and deaths. And that's what really, really counts. Now, some have raised questions that, you know, in terms of the effectiveness or efficacy numbers of one vaccine over another, that there have been some differences. So there may be some differences as far as preventing mild cases, and we need more data to, to see if one is better than, uh, than the other. But, uh, but the risk of waiting um, leads you to a risk of, a necessary risk of uh, being exposed and, and, and risk of death that, that one could easily avoid. Um, there was recently some question about um, a form of very rare blood clots um, from the AstraZeneca vaccine, and um, from what I can gather, this is an extremely, extremely, extremely small uh, risk, and, um, and even then, the risk has not yet uh, been proven. Um, but, uh, you know, if you're willing to take risks, such as going out to, to drive on the 401, go for a walk in, in the park, or, or hop on a plane, then, um, then if you're willing to accept those types of risks in your daily life, then uh, uh, why not to uh, accept this even theoretical risk of uh, an extremely rare complication from uh, that particular vaccine? We must continue to march forward with our heads held high, full of courage and optimism. Last but far from least, what will be your next song that you will sing, perform, record, to pay tribute to your fellow physicians. That's a great question. I've been uh, I've been trying to think of uh, of different ideas, and certainly if there are listeners out there that uh, have any <laughs> any requests, please look me up on on uh, Twitter or online, Dr. Ben Chan, and um, I'd love to hear your ideas. 
Um, maybe something on vaccine hesitation and, uh, and to encourage everybody to go out and uh, get their shot. Uh, I, uh, that's something I've been thinking about. I have an idea. The song, Hit Me With Your Best Shot. Okay, well, I'll have to, uh, I'll have to, I'll have to get that some thought. <laughs> you are wonderful to speak with, Dr. Chan. Thank you so much for joining us on the feed. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. Food for Thought, that's next on the feed. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back. I'm Ann Romer. Something in your fridge about to go bad? Hmm. Well, there's a new cookbook from Ikea that could be the solution to avoiding waste. Jim Lang with the delicious details. As Canadians, we waste way too much food every year. And our friends at Ikea Canada are doing something to help us curb that bad habit and help save the world and save the environment. I think it's a fantastic initiative. To talk more about it, I'm thrilled to be joined by the head of marketing for Ikea Canada, Joanna Undren. Joanna, how are you? I'm good. Yes, yes, and welcome to the weekend. Uh, it's fantastic to think about uh, an idea where this is a, a, a scrapbooks cookbook. It's a cookbook dedicated to leftover food so we don't waste it because we waste too much food every year. We do. And also, we know that uh, uh, the kitchen is the most wasteful room in the home. So, yeah, we really wanted to inspire Canadians to reduce uh, the kitchen waste by this uh, cookbook. I mean, I was stunned at the figures. An estimated 2 million tons of food is wasted in Canada alone. And IKEA has done a great job by reducing your food waste in the restaurants. And I guess when you started in your company and your people started working towards uh, this cookbook dedicated to reworking and sort of reimagining leftover food, you probably had a lot of positive feedback from it. Yeah, I mean, we, we, we just launched it, uh, but of course we have been into sustainability and really trying to inspire the many Canadians to, to do the small little things in their everyday life to, to, to change and to, to, to save the planet. And uh, uh, we started uh, with the kitchen campaign before Christmas, uh, which, which was really about, uh, we wanted to show that, that food waste can be beautiful. Uh, and this is more, the, the, the scrapbook uh, is more of an extension to, to really help customers change their habits. Um, yeah, create less waste in the kitchen. Well, the IKEA uh, Scrapbooks Cookbook is a 50 digital recipes automatically, and you get it, and you can enter to win a physical copy of a 214-page book. But uh, whether you want to get the e-version or the regular version, it's all good, and it's all great ideas and great sustainable ways to do. Because often we'll make something and go, oh, we have a little bit left over here and there. What do we do with it? And this is a great way to, to repurpose what is good food, but just in a different way than you originally cooked it. Yeah, totally. Excellent. Now, when you get some of the um, ideas, were even you surprised at some of the ideas? Oh, I never thought I could do that with this leftover food. Are you learning stuff as well? Yeah, I do. I mean, uh, I actually tried the banana, uh, banana peel basin yesterday. Uh, and uh, I think also when you look into these super inspiring recipes, uh, how, what, what can you do with your leftover cheese or meat or yesterday's carrots and broccoli spoons. And I, I feel it, it's also a very inspiring way of, of um, when you look into the images and these fantastic photos of uh, Maya Wisner, 
Uh, and I think that was very important for us because maybe when you think about uh, yesterday's or, or leftovers or broccoli soup, you, you might not see the beauty in it. Uh, and I think with the pictures uh, in this uh, cookbook, you get really inspired. Well, and I find this is a great way to sort of look back to older times when people would take the leftovers and make a big stew or, or a hodgepodge or something and not waste. And we got away from that. It's important for us to get back to it, A, to cut back on landfill and food waste, but B, just to, it's it's healthy too, I think. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. And, and we also wanted to talk about not only the healthy part around it and the sustainable part, but it's also a section in the end of the cookbook around food safety too. I mean, everything, how, how to uh, uh, use the microwave and, and uh, yeah, also how, how to store uh, and cook with, with the leftovers. Get more details, ikea.ca slash scrap cooking. Scrap cooking is repurposing all your different scraps in your kitchen and do it in a great way. She is Joanna Andrew, the head of marketing, Ikea Canada. The Scrapbooks Cookbook is a must for anyone. And if we all work together, we can make a real dent in food waste in this country. Ikea.ca. Joanna, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thank you, and have a great weekend. You too. Bye-bye. So if you're short on dine-in ideas, Karen Johnson may just have the recipe. Shahir Masood is a Canadian chef and TV personality. He studied at the French Culinary Institute. Now, he's also showcased his culinary skills as a co-host of the CBC daytime talk show, The Goods. His new cookbook entitled Eat Habibi Eat is out May 4th. He joins us on the feed today. And all I can say to you is I bow down to you because your Instagram has my palate just going 24 hours a day, sir. <laughs> I'll take it. You'll Thank take you, Karen. It. You'll take it. <laughs> Tell me something. You know, I, I watch you on social media. I saw you uh, on the yep. goods and so forth, and you just make things so easy for you. Your culinary dishes on Instagram just pop. It makes you want to do things that you probably have never done. How did you sure. start your culinary journey? How did this love fest start? Well, well thank you, Karen. And uh, it started a while ago. It was uh, 2009 um, when I kept getting fired. I was an accountant right out of school. And uh, I wasn't a good one. <laughs> and, you I know, find that hard you keep to believe. Getting, yeah, well, you know, to be a good accountant, if any of our listeners out there are accountants, they know that a big part of the job is to just, you know, be quiet. And I'm not very good at that. So I was not good at auditing, you know, and, and number crunching all day. So it was kind of like I had nothing to lose. And I told my parents, listen, this isn't working out for me. And I just wanted to have, to be honest, at that time, I just wanted to have a job that I found fun. I was so tired of being bored mm -hmm. at my job. So um, I upped and left. I moved to New York City. I went to the French Culinary Institute, enrolled in that uh, amazing program. And I started knocking on doors and started just working in whatever great restaurants would take me. That's like, you know, the uh, a story as old as time. That's the way to do it. You start in the basement of great restaurants, peeling, prepping, and and working your way up. And that's what I started. That was, yeah, 2009. That is incredible. And, so uh, I, I want to look back. I want to go back to your parents because, you know, I think you and I had a similar background. I know when you met my dad, he, my dad's an accountant uh, by trade too. That's right. And I remember that. Yeah, you, you kind of have to stay in the box and you didn't. What yep. was their reaction yep. initially and what is it now with well, your success? Well, I write about this in the book because, you know, a big part of the book is this whole story. And when I told my parents, obviously they were surprised. And, you know, at that time, Karen, I was five months shy of qualifying as a CA. I just had to keep 
working for five months and I couldn't physically, like, I could not finish this thing. And also part of it was I knew if I finished my CA, I would never leave. I met people who were like that, who, you know, 10 years of their life kind of flew by and they kind of said, you know, what happened? So I felt, uh, you know, sometimes only you know yourself the best. And I, I knew if I finished my CA, I, I might not leave. So that was part of my decision. But of course, my immigrant parents were, you know, baffled by this. Said, Why don't you finish? And so they were not thrilled, mm-hmm. but they were supportive. And, and, and I do write about this in the book and say they were the people who said, you know, this is ill-timed. It's irresponsible. Quite frankly, it's stupid. But we'll support you. Well, I'll tell you that it takes me to this cookbook. Again, you could have put something out there traditional. You could have, but you didn't. And I love that you did this with this new cookbook. And I love the title because growing up, I actually grew up with a a lovely woman who was from Jordan who spoke to me as I grew up in in Arabic. And uh, and Habibi is the term of endearment? It's the the ultimate term of endearment. It could be how how you, you know, refer to your children, your spouse, your friend. You know, everyone is a Habibi, right? So, but especially in a household growing up, this is what your mother would say to you, your grandmother would say to you, your aunt would say to you. And when you're a kid running around the table, they would say, eat, Habibi, eat, sit down, eat. You know, like, mm-hmm. this is, this is, uh, it, it's in every kind of Arabic household. And when it came time to write a book, most of my career, Karen, was in Italian restaurants, French training, stuff like that. And I thought, do we need another Italian cookbook? You know, do we need another French cookbook? Maybe not. And when I thought about it, I said, well, let me revisit these flavors and these dishes that I grew up with and use that training to kind of put a spin on them and, and modernize. That's, Give them a new look perfect. and a new it flavor. Yeah, yeah. And I love the flavor. And let's talk about that because how did you decide to choose certain recipes for this book? Yes, flavor and so forth, but are these flavors sure. that are, are readily available, like the herbs and the spices? And how did you go about making that decision? Yeah, I mean, a, well, a lot of them were just from dishes that I grew up with, that every Egyptian kid would grow up with, that you would see on every you know holiday table. And then a, a lot of the recipes in the book really come from accessible stuff that you would find in the grocery store, sumac, cumin, coriander, all these beautiful spices that you can find readily in the grocery store. And a lot of people don't know what to do with them or, or are hesitant to leave their comfort zone. And I, you know, from hearing from people across the country, most people, and think about it from yourself, most people have a rotation of dishes that they go to, four or five dishes that they go to over and over and over again. And I've heard from so many people that they go to the grocery store, they want to go beyond those four or five dishes. And then they end up not doing it. They end up getting the same, you know, ingredients, the same thing. And so I think a book like this really can inspire new ideas, new even even if it inspires a new spice to try into your repertoire or a new technique or a new, you know, flavor combination. Um, it really is one of those books that can help you take yourself out of that comfort zone. What's your favorite Hopefully those, recipe? Those, you know, those recipes end up in your repertoire. Of course, no. So talk about a repertoire. What is one of your favorite recipes from the book? Oh, oh, that's a great question. Because um, as a chef, you have one palate, and as an individual yeah. who's eating it, you have another. So what did you do to, to combine those two to put this as a, as a top recipient to That's the book? a tough question. You know what? This book, there's a lot of, it's really, I made it um, specifically in different kind of chapter so that everything is covered. There's great desserts. There's great bread recipes. There's great dips. There's great main plates. Um, there's a bread recipe in here, a whole wheat pita, a traditional Egyptian whole wheat pita called Bellity bread. It's made with 100% whole wheat flour, 
and crack wheat bran on top for texture. Uh, and it's it's really not that hard to make. It's literally whole wheat flour, water, some yeast, a little bit of technique. Um, and that is such a simple recipe that I keep making over and over and over again. So something as simple as that, just a wonderful at-home whole wheat pita recipe. Um, and then, of course, you know, in the main plates, there's a there's an Egyptian dish called, and really it's Lebanese as well. There's different versions called feta, and it could be with lamb. It could be with beef. My version has a lamb shoulder braised in a tomatoey broth with a caraway and cumin. It's so delicious. Cardamom pods in there. Sounds delicious. Crispy pita on top. It's so good. And, you know, they're easy. They're really actually accessible recipes, which is so important. I like that. Well, listen, you know, when, when I was going through your social media feeds and so forth, you're a dad, a dad of two now. So congratulations mm-hmm. on your latest yeah. arrival that uh, appeared you. in December. You have a daughter and you also have a son. And I wanted to know, is your son a picky eater or and does he like to help you out in the kitchen quite a bit? Because I look at your Instagram feed and he looks like he's he's in there. Both hands. Both hands. He, if, if you ask him, he also considers himself a chef. He's decided that he's also a chef. Of course. Well, of course. So he, you know, he says that we have two chefs in the house, and that's cool. And uh, my, my son, who's almost four, he turns four in April, it depends on the day. Some days, and listen, like most kids, he eats everything he's served at daycare. And then some days he comes home and he's just, you know, he's not having it. And on other days, when I explain to him, listen, to be a great chef, half the battle is to taste. Taste, mm-hmm. taste, taste. So he'll surprise me. Sometimes, you know, the other night he tried octopus and he ate octopus and enjoyed it. And some and other nights, you know, he won't eat the chicken if it's touching the rice. So it depends on the day. <laughs> you know what? You, this actually brings me to my next question. As parents, I have two boys. Um, how do you avoid children having a restricted palate? What do we? What, we, what can we do as parents to uh, mm-hmm. to avoid that sort of hang up? Well, I I use two tricks, and one trick is always to get them involved whether it's involved in the shopping process, the prepping process, the cooking process, et cetera, and try and get them excited. So if they're involved in the, the whole process of buying, prepping, and cooking a meal, then they're more inclined to take a bite. They have some ownership in the process. And then the other thing I like to do is no different than with adults. In the restaurant business, we always say you sell the sizzle before the steak. You know, octopus was a great example. When I branded it as chicken of the sea, he said, oh, (laughs) the chicken of the sea, what's that about? (laughs) You know, knowing that my kid likes, you know, plain chicken like most kids, it's about selling the sizzle a little bit, um, and creating titles for recipes and all that, you know, that's, that's half the battle. That's a great My way. dad, I'll give you an example. My dad, the only thing he knew how to make as kids was scrambled eggs, but he would call them secret eggs. Oh, well, secret eggs more and more impressive than a scrambled egg, you know. <laughs> so Absolutely. Come up with a cool title. Yeah. And get involved them. Well, for our listeners ready to serve up something new and exciting at their kitchen table, where can they purchase this new, exciting book of yours? Okay, so they're all available for pre-order um, on Indigo, on Amazon. And the great thing about Indigo is my book has been selected as one of the anticipated cookbooks of the spring. So now is the time to go to indigo.ca and pick that book up. Um, and then after that, I believe it's available everywhere on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all sorts of places. I love it. So can I just tell to our uh, tell our listeners, Yella, Yella, is that going to be your next uh, next? Yella, uh, yeah, yeah. Now it's like time that? to cook, baby, cook. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so I just gave you your sequel to it. <laughs> 
There it goes. That's Thank right. you so much. I really appreciate it, Shahir Masood, a Canadian chef, a TV personality, a dad, a husband, uh, just cooks up all sorts of exciting culinary things. And also an Instagram. What's your Instagram handle if people want to follow you there, too? Because you come up with some great, like, just on-the-spot dishes. Yeah, for sure. It's just at Shahir Masood. Shahir Masood, a great personality. Pick up his new cookbook. Thank you for joining us on the feed today. Next on the feed, on the road again with the CAA, Heather Seaman buckles up. After taking last year off because of the pandemic, the Canadian Automobile Association is back with the Worst Roads campaign. To fill us in is Tina Wong, Government Relations Specialist for CAA South Central Ontario. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Heather. I'm happy to be here. So tell us about this year's campaign. Definitely. So this year, we are bringing back the CAA Worst Roads Advocacy Campaign after taking last year off due to the pandemic. We think it's really important to refocus the conversation on education and safety, um, even though right now we have lots of different competing priorities in the pandemic. Uh, CAA firmly believes that funding for roadway improvements need to be consistent to ensure that quality and safety is maintained. Why is that renewed focus on education and safety so important? So the renewed focus is really important just to think about things in context. Our roads are the arteries that are used every day to keep essential goods, workers, and services flowing, and they really should be maintained now more than ever, especially since due to COVID-19, people have been changing their transportation habits. They're riding their bikes more and driving their personal vehicles more instead of carpooling or taking public transit. Um, Also, people have been encouraged to stay at home and telework during the pandemic, So we've seen some lighter traffic patterns on roads today, and we think that it's a great opportunity for decision makers to take this time to do some road repairs when it's less busy. So tell us what the findings have been here in York Region in previous years. Yeah, so in previous years, um, York Region has had some roads appear in the regional list, so not the provincial top 10 list, um, but in some smaller lists that focus specifically on uh, the suburban regions outside of Toronto. In 2019, we saw Highway 404 in Richmond Hill, Young Street in Newmarket, and Highway 7 in Vaughan. And then going back to 2018, we saw Highway 7 in both Vaughan and Markham, as well as 16th Avenue in Richmond Hill. You touched on it earlier. Fewer cars were out on the roads last year, so how bad could things be? So that's a great question, and that's what this campaign is really hoping to find out this year, Uh, just because we know that municipalities plan several years in advance with their capital works and repair projects, and these schedules are based on the anticipated life cycle and lifespan of the pavements that are installed through various roads, taking into account the wear and tear, as well as various weather and climate patterns. So because these lists, these contests are really a snapshot of a particular moment in time, it's very important that everybody go to caaworthroads.com this year and cast their nomination for the worst roads in their areas. I'm wondering, how do the results influence decision makers to make roadway improvements? So the votes that we collect through our voting portal are compiled into the provincial top 10 list along with a series of regional lists. 
And these lists are all designed to spark a dialogue with government to help pave the way for safer roads. We know that municipalities are responsible for approximately 140,000 kilometers of roads across the province, and they do all of this with limited resources. So it's important for communities to share their view on what and on what investments should be made and in which locations and which roads. CAA Worst Roads is the forum to do just that. I live in Toronto, and I noticed topping the list of worst roads in Ontario during last year's campaign was Eglinton Avenue East in Toronto. And second was Riverdale Drive in Washago. And uh, third was Dufferin Street in Toronto. And I noticed some roads in Hamilton also made the top 10. So did any York Region roads make the cut last year? No. So there were no York Region roads in the provincial top 10 list in 2019 or 2018, which were the last two years we ran the campaign. Okay, and once again, where can listeners vote or find more information? Head on over to caaworthroads.com. Again, that's caaworthroads.com to cast your vote starting today through April 18th. And you're allowed to vote more than once just because there may very well be roads that you're concerned about rather than just one road. There might be multiple. And for every chance you vote, you get a chance to win gas for a year. Oh, that's exciting. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And I know that once voting wraps up, a list of the 10 worst roads in the province will be compiled along with the worst roads in regions across Ontario. Thanks again for joining us on the feed. Thank you, Heather. If you missed any part of our show, go to 1059theregion.com for the podcast edition. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you for listening.